I think that's what people usually think about is there's a rapture, all of the good people are taken up, sort of pulled off the earth to heaven, and then um, basically these horrible plagues come and there's all this terrible suffering and agony, but through God's judgment, um, some people sort of convert to Christianity and are saved, and then there's this great battle between, I think in the Left Behind series, the Antichrist is like the secretary general of a UN that's become over-centralized, which is, I guess, probably what, how I would write it, too, if I were doing those books. Um, but I just want to, I mean, I guess I just want to push some of that aside for a moment, um, because it's not really an idea that developed until, um, I don't know, I want to say 18... 1830s, 1840s maybe, um, with a guy named John Darby who just sort of invented this, and then his friend um, Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Reference Bible, heard about it and liked the idea, so he put it in all of these notes and then sold, you know, a bajillion copies in America, and we sort of inherited this doctrine, but it's never, um, the rapture thing has never been a huge um, has never really received great reception in theology, as far as I understand it, at least, and is a relatively um, modern idea. But I think there's something good to the rapture narrative. And what I'm reading from here is this book called The Rapture Exposed by Barbara Rossing. I don't know if anybody's ever read it. Um, she's definitely got a strong political agenda, but sort of in her course of pursuing it, there's a lot of really wonderful um, and sort of approachable thoughts on eschatology in here. But she says, um, the left-behind novels follow the pattern of other apocalypses as they take readers on a vivid journey and wake them up to a sense of urgency about God. That is the novel's strength. And this sense of urgency about God is, I think, one of the things that we're supposed to take away from eschatology. Really, if all of this could end any day, and even though that sounds something like something that maybe we associate with kind of crazy, um, like, you know, person, we I always just think of like person on the street corner, like holding up a big sign that says, you know, the fire is coming or whatever, and it's just sort of like, oh, that, that wasn't a good thing to see on a Wednesday afternoon in my walk home from work. Um, but that sense of urgency, um, in, in some sense, is sort of supposed to be held in view. And again, hopefully, um, have a chance to fill some of this out. What I think one of the weaknesses of the Bible, uh, of the left behind stories, is um, someone who had interviewed the authors of that book um, said, quote, uh, readers attribute to left behind the bringing of these obscure images from the book of Revelation to life, which often means bringing them into a scheme of logic, assimilating them into a cosmic story they can understand. And I think the whole point of Revelation, first and foremost, is that we can't really understand it. No man may know the day or the hour and all of that. And one of the main sort of functions of of the idea of eschatology is to have this mystery that stands above us and sort of everything that we think is ultimate is in fact um, sort of flawed and provisional and impermanent. Um, so just sort of to highlight the story of Revelation briefly, it's a 
letter sent to seven churches um, with the same content for each, and each church has a little paragraph addressed specifically to them at the beginning, so it's a circular letter. And at the time, um, Christians were suffering persecutions, and um, I think it was really the first big bout of persecutions. Todd, maybe you know more about the history there. Was it like Decius or Diocletian? What was the... You know, sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Um, yeah, so sort of a first big bout of that. And things on earth just looked sort of um, bleak, for lack of a better word. So this idea of an otherworldly deliverance would have been very salient. And I think a lot of the language in there, you know, eventually there's um, this beast that comes up from the water that's sort of where we've gotten the idea of the Antichrist from this beast is sort of a vision of earthly power and earthly um, sort of political strength and earthly pretensions to being God, like the Roman emperors had. Um, you know, I think one of these beasts is wearing like a tiara, which I don't even really know what that means because I only think of contemporary reality shows when I think of tiaras or like bachelorette parties that you sort of see in Nashville. Um, but anyway, and blasphemous names are written on it. So it's this picture of human pretensions to being God that all of these kind of judgments like hail and fire and brimstone and whatever else in Revelation are targeted at. And eventually, um, basically, things on the earth get progressively worse. And then um, Jesus sort of comes and fights this battle with evil and wins and then this like new Jerusalem comes down to earth and the earth is remade. That's the basic plot of Revelation. But one of the big ideas there is um, it draws a lot on the Exodus story, which was foundational really for a lot of prophecy, Jewish literature. You know, They're always sort of referencing the Exodus because this is their, um, you know, it's true, but it's also sort of their founding myth and in the way that we would, in the way that people talk about that, sort of the, the identity myth that ties the nation together. And in the Exodus, too, um, the Jews were slaves, and they were under the Egyptians, and things were really bleak, and then God brought them out. So here in Roman times, the Christians are hoping for a similar deliverance. But I want to talk a little bit um, about... And Exodus is um, from a bad thing into a good thing, from the yoke of the Egyptians into the promised land with um, milk and honey and tall cedars and whatever other things the promised land had in it, olives. Um, but so it's from one thing and into something else. And, you know, we want to get from where we are with a lot of sort of bad things or oppressive things going on around us into something better. Um, so I want to start with the question of what is it that um, we are hope to be delivered into? What is it that, um, you know, do we actually hope to be delivered into something better? And I, I think we do. There's a longing that I have just for some sort of presence in life. Um, and it's an unmet longing. You know, I, this is 
a little too much information, but I have uh, got a nice little, um, like, I don't know, like nail clipping kit or something. And we have great tools for everything. You know, I have one clipper that's shaped one way for my fingernails and another clipper that's shaped another way for my toenails. And it's great because, you know, there's a specialized sort of instrument to meet every need, but um, to sort of pull from Walker Percy a little bit, I have nothing at all that helps me get through an ordinary Wednesday afternoon when inexplicably, sort of as, as, as Nick Lannon said this morning, um, I have all of these advantages, but a lot of times um, you just feel this emptiness or this sense of anxiety or a longing for something different, something more, some sort of longing for, um, I just want to call it a presence. And I think we feel this to um, you know, varying degrees. If you're somebody who's sort of melancholy and has mild chronic depression, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about right now. And then there's other people that just sort of you know, seem to have it all together. And um, that's a really good thing. And yeah, congratulations. I'm very envious of you. Um, I'm saying that totally seriously. Um, but I think, I think um, y'all will hopefully be able to relate a little bit to, I want to, coming from the melancholy point of view, one passage that I think really emphasizes this. If anybody's looking for a novel about a really melancholy person, um, read Marcel Proust. It's incredible. This kid is just needy and pathetic and exactly like me um, a lot of the time. And um, anyway, his name's Marcel, and he's the hero of this um, In Search of Lost Time, which is sort of this, I don't know, I don't know, maybe early 20th century French book. But um, he, um, he's this sort of needy, melancholy boy, which is to say he kind of doesn't have any buffers against his emotions. He feels things very directly. And his, um, near the kind of opening of the book, Reading it will really give you a nervous breakdown. I mean, the first hundred pages are literally about um, him wanting his mom to come upstairs and kiss him, and he can't sleep unless she does. But um, often she doesn't because she's trying to make him grow up, and the kid just has these tormented nights, and it's brutal. Um, and I'll see if I can elucidate a little bit um, one particular scene where the kid is grown up a little bit, and maybe he's a teenager, and he's at the beach at a place in Baalbek, and he's in this new hotel room. I don't know if you all have ever stayed alone in a hotel room and gone to, like, a really existential place. Um, definitely happened to me, probably will on Saturday night, sort of post-Mockingbird, coming down from all of the um, adrenaline and dopamine and serotonin and whatever else. is always a nice existential moment for me. Um, but anyway, he's in a hotel room, and he just feels alone and isolated. But his grandmother, who's this kind of beautiful, um, saintly person, is in the room next to him, you know, like adjoining rooms with a kind of door and a wall um, or a partition between them. And the boy is in agony emotionally most of the time in this period of his life. And he says, quote, I knew when I was with my grandmother that however great the misery that there was in me, 
it would be received by her with a pity still more vast. I threw myself into the arms of my grandmother and clung with my lips to her face as though I had access thus to that immense heart which she opened to me. And I think in those down moments that we have, um, to have this misery or, or guilt or regret or anxiety or whatever it is in us be met with a pity still more vast um, is really what we want. We want this sort of presence. So, um, again, there's the partition there, and he gets really, when he's alone, he gets really sad, and it's in the evening. But, of course, he's a teenager, so he can't be sleeping with his grand, you know, he's got to grow up a little bit and separate a little bit. And they have this um, hand signal where he knocks on the wall when he needs her. And he says, quote, um, Sure enough, that evening I ventured on three little taps, timidly, faintly, but for all that distinctly, for I was afraid of disturbing her, supposing that I had been mistaken and that she was still asleep. I should not have wished her to lie awake listening um, for me, and which I would not have the courage to repeat for fear that she had heard and just didn't want to respond. And scarcely had I given up my taps than I heard three others in a different intonation from mine, stamped with a calm authority, repeated twice over, so that there should be no mistake. And shortly afterward, my grandmother appeared. I, um, I haven't felt that wretched in a while, but at times in our lives, this is all of us. And I think... Um, you know, you might wake up at 3 o'clock, you know, you might feel great for months and then you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning one night and can't go back to bed. And you're right there in this place that this um, kid is describing. And I want to talk for a second about this partition between um, this kid Marcel's room and his grandmother's. You know, he's um, knocks on the wall sort of seeking her and what he hears in response is just three three knocks from her, back to him, reassuring him. But then um, she's got to sort of get out of bed and get dressed and all of this before she comes to him. So I want to say, first of all, this is sort of our, um, I think maybe not mine because I don't apprehend um, some of this stuff as much as I should, but I think this is sort of our ideal posture towards the eschaton or the second coming is... um, We've heard the three knocks, and we're just waiting um, for the presence which those knocks promise to appear. So there's a deep emotional need here um, that God responds to. Um, Now, to step back a little bit, this song is a little cheesy. Um, I'm going to play it anyway. And it's by the Rolling Stones, and, you know... In case anybody's sort of feeling, I'm like, you know, that's not me, that sort of need. It was Mick Jagger, actually, and Mick Jagger's a great, very strong person, I think. I don't really know much about Mick Jagger, but I've always assumed that. But this is a song called Tell Me, and I think this longing for presence, you know, for Marcel, it was his grandmother, and for me right now, since I'm in law school, maybe it's a certain kind of grades or certain career, which is about the stupidest of, of, of all of them, <laughs> really misplaced. But um, we all sort of have different things. You know, the next big thing that you're hoping for, or the thing that you want in that 
um, when life feels hard. And for Mick Jagger, it's a girl who has um, just left him, or left him at some point. And this is a song called Tell Me. Um, hopefully everybody can hear it. Let's see. I'm just going to listen in silence. over and over again. Um, so yeah, one, one image that, I mean, first of all, I just think that that song sort of, um, that's sort of, a, again, like an eschatological mindset, a sort of anticipation of, of the thing that we want. Um, and I think, I, I really especially love that image of I hear the knock on my door um, that never comes. Um, I hear the telephone that hasn't rung because you're sort of you know, like when you're um, waiting for somebody to 
call you back or something, like the silent phone in your pocket is almost like a presence, you know, you're sort of perceiving the absence of something. Um, and, you know, I think Christianity, we, we would say that sort of um, the new heaven and the new earth, whatever that is, is, is the answer to these desires, and these desires um, sort of signal the existence of that or the possibility of some higher thing. Um, and I think the hard thing is that, you know, uh, Marcel's grandmother does sort of appear a few minutes after the knock, and he's waiting during that time, and presumably waiting with anxiety. But, you know, we, uh, we sort of heard the knock on the door, what was it, a couple thousand years ago, and still kind of waiting. And so that's a hard place to be in. But um, it's not the... We're, we're not sort of the first religion that's dealt with this. Judaism dealt with it in a very, very deep way because God's promise, um, and again, I sort of feel like if there's any biblical scholars in here, I'm probably going to feel embarrassed. But as far as I understand it, God's promise to Israel was uh, very much about um, Israel sort of securing the land, having the land, um, having sort of some political power and some prestige, having um, a strong religion and like an obedient a people that really worshiped God. Um, and then the other nations would look, or would look at Israel and sort of envy and say, what is it that they have going on? And through that way, Israel would be, um, you know, a light to the nations, a light to enlighten the Gentiles, whatever other sort of phrases we have there. But things go horribly wrong when they all um, end up in Babylon, which is not the promised land. And they're sort of with these um, pagan people. And you know, I don't really know anything about the Babylonians, but um, I think their religion was probably pretty weird. And they were a big empire, and they were just sort of holding the Jews there against their will. And, you know, the land had been promised by God and given to them, and suddenly this empire is sort of torn them away from that, so they wanted to go back really badly. When you're reading some of the literature from this time period, um, you know, there's, if I forget thee, Jerusalem, may my right hand wither and die. There's this intense desire for Jerusalem, and the prophets come in to sort of meet this hope, and the prophets say some really wonderful things. For instance, from, um, um, for instance, like, um, I don't know, there's just, there's, the prophets just sort of, I don't know, say all of these wonderful things about sort of coming back to the land. Um, one example of sort of Israel's promised future comes from Hosea, where he says, I will make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, this is the prophet speaking, the birds of the air and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Um, I will have pity on the one who is called not pitied. Um, I'll have pity on the one who is not pitied, and I will say to the one called not my people, you are my people, and Israel will say, you are my God. And there's these really high expectations that the promised land will eventually um, be given, and um, when the Israelites come back from the exile. What happens is um, things are wonderful for, I don't know, a few decades, and then 
you just sort of have random other empires that are dabbling around on their turf, ending with the Romans um, who are subjugating them. So this, all of this hope and this longing for, you know, what Mick Jagger wanted in that song was sort of what Israel wanted. That was the national vision of um, the good thing that they wanted. And the prophets said they would get it, and then they didn't. So, I mean, history in some sense sort of went sour, went against them. The promises the prophets made went um, not unfulfilled because there was some return, but they went underfulfilled, only a partial fulfillment. So what do we do with that when the prophets have, you know, told, um, told us that this is our land and suddenly and that we'll be restored and we sort of seem to be, but now the Romans are here too. Well, um, what they did was write apocalyptic literature, which was a new genre, which um, Daniel is probably the best known example of. But what happened was um, history had disappointed them, and these expectations they had, these desires that they had had been frustrated by history. So what happens is instead of writing about, you know, you'll be getting vineyards, um, they start writing about these sort of bizarre, otherworldly things. And the idea is that if history has gone sour, then maybe it's not so much that things will look up for us sort of naturally, but that God will radically intervene in a dramatic way. And that's why we go from prophecies about vineyards to, in apocalyptic literature, prophecies about, like, I don't know, wheels of fire interlocking in the sky. Maybe that's Ezekiel. I don't really know. But some really strange and dramatic things. And um, so just to, yeah, to recap, the promise has this certain excess. And that excess is deferred to the future. And um, so, for example, um, in Daniel, he says... Um, Um, I saw one who looked like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. This, and this was written, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred years B.C. Um, he was given glory, the son of man, the ancient of days, was given glory, authority, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples worshipped him. So it's this intervention sort of from heaven, from above, this radical change in the course of this history that has failed to live up to the promises um, we've received. And so another, um, or another interesting thing in Daniel where the empire, the Roman Empire, they were subjugated by worldly power. So not only is there the mercy of deliverance, but there's also um, the idea that worldly power is some sort of mirage. You know, God could take all of this away in a heartbeat. And again, these otherworldly ideas are sort of what you see in apocalyptic literature. Um, so Daniel also sees a statue that represents the great empires of the world. And um, it turns out that they're just sort of transient and they're weak. And the statue, which is sort of worldly power as a whole, has a head of gold. It looks great, but feet of clay. It's fragile. The whole thing could collapse at any moment. And so... Um, these are basically the characteristics of apocalyptic literature, which springs up as a reaction to the Hebrews' disappointment with um, sort of underfulfilled prophecies. Um, apocalyptic literature, apocalypsis means unveiling. 
And this is where, you know, the word apocalyptic in every sense it's used now comes from this. Um, Apocalypsis means unveiling, so sort of the real state of things. Things look really bad down here. It looks like Rome's, you know, really got us, but the real state of things is hidden, and this prophet says that he's seen it unveiled, and then he communicates this message of hope to the people, and what this message is about is about the sort of ultimate sovereign power of God and a radical intervention. And Christians have this problem, too. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of getting really excited about some religious thing, and then it sort of turns out that you have all of these really positive emotions, and then a few days later, or months later, or weeks later, you're embarrassed about them. This always happened to me after weekends at Young Life Camp. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing, and two weeks later, I'd be like, what was I thinking? Um, so sort of on the one hand, I'm completely naive, but on the other hand, I'm completely cynical. Oh, that was just my emotions running high. You know, that was just the lighting and the song choices, which probably part of it was that acoustic guitar can go a long way. But, you know, the Bible encourages these sort of hopes, this naivety. Um, in Luke chapter 11, 9 through 10, Jesus says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, I don't want to deny that there is a real power of prayer that's being expressed here, but also, just empirically, this is not true all the time. You know, I ask for things all the time. I ask for good things, spiritual things, you know. God, um, you know, make me be less of a, make me be less short with my mother on the phone. You know, God wants me to be less short with my mom on the phone. This is a good prayer request. It should be answered. But um, usually it's not, unsurprisingly, maybe. Um, so this is sort of our experience. Again, under fulfillment, just like the promises of the Restoration, we get these great, grand promises in the New Testament that we just want to totally buy into, and then our reality doesn't bear that out. So again, there's the same sort of gap and the same sort of under-fulfillment. Um, and Christians were experiencing this, because um, Rome also was, um, again, persecuting them. So... In Revelation, that's one of the big things. Is You have to imagine these early Christians have probably, some of them might have read Luke as well. Um, and again, you know, Bible people, um, you can, um, I'm probably wrong on that. But I'm just assuming that some early Christians might have read that. And they're saying, our experience doesn't match up to this. You know, we, we've knocked and we've asked and all of that. And, um, you know, still all of our friends just keep getting sort of rounded up and, taken to prison, um, and Revelation is written sort of, first of all, as a comfort to them, because they have this need for um, sort of presence that's not being adequately fulfilled, and again, I'll get more into the ending of Revelation later, but Revelation responds by, uh, John of Patmos says at one point, you know, God himself will wipe every tear from your eye. It's immensely comforting words to people who have experienced disappointment. Um, 
But, yeah, the problem with, it's hard, because when you just sort of have the knocks, you know, the signal that what we want will be coming at some point, but there's still this absence of Jesus, this telephone that we hear that hasn't rung, so, of course, um, what we try to do is find answers to these sort of needs or desires in other places, and this is where, this might sound a little cliche, um, but, you know, usual suspects, um, sex, drugs, power, influence, uh, money, um, career, whatever, and I think a lot of times people describe this as like idolatry, as if, you know, I'm sort of this dispassionate observer who's saying, okay, do I want to worship money, or do I want to worship um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus? Eh, I'll, I'll take money. But what I think the idolatry thing fails to note is this need, because the thing about money um, is that money is there. I can, you know, go buy stuff with it. I can get a new album, a new um, blender. I think people buy Vitamixes now with their money. Isn't that what everybody's doing now? Anyway, um, but it's tangible, and it's sort of things that seem to be there, whereas, again, Christ is absent. It's, it's the telephone that hasn't rung, or it's just the knocks on the partition, but we're waiting for the appearance. Um, and uh, Marcel, returning to our really neurotic um, and sort of pitiable narrator, who's also me and you, um, he says, it was my fate to pursue only phantoms, creatures whose reality existed to a great extent in my imagination. Um, they sacrifice all else, leave no stone unturned, make everything else subservient to the capture of some phantom. And I certainly know people like this, you know, people who think that as soon as you move to San Francisco, all of the problems in your life will go away. Or, um, you know, as soon as I get to the next step of my career, then I can really take on some responsibility and have some more self-direction at work and have a fulfilled job. Um, and there's, you know, we all sort of have them, and it might, it's kind of hard for me to recognize mine because I'm defensive about that. Like Paul's always saying, you know, that's, that's sort of like one of those cabinets that I just, I don't want to open it. I don't want to see. But I can definitely tell you what yours is if we, if we get to know each other and you can see what mine are. So we can look around at the people around us and be like, yeah, that guy is, you know, thinks that X will make him cool and he doesn't even see that it's either one impossible, two futile, or just three complete BS. And um, this is true of me, and it's true of all of us. And these places we look for this presence that Christ um, only partially provides, um, a lot of them are very good things, but I think the hard thing is they become burdensome, because once we start looking to things for self-justification, then suddenly... Um, we need them to shore up our identity or to, to meet these emotional needs. We become dependent on them in some way. So, for example, um, you know, in high school, I always made very good grades. And it was like, yeah, I want to invest in this. I want to, grades are super important, you know. That's what it's all about. Because um, that made me feel good. And that was a great sort of source of presence. But then I got to college um, 
went to high school in South Georgia, so don't think I'm like bragging too much. Um, you know, South Georgians are great. I, I love everything. But anyway, I got to, got to college and suddenly I'm, I'm not making the same grades. And it's like, what's happened? Where has this gone? And I discovered that I had built a almost biological dependence on that source of fulfillment. And sort of classic mockingbird terms, what we would say is that's the law, um, a sphere in which we have to prove ourselves and earn our value and our justification. And so, yeah, these places we turn to meet this need um, become burdens on us, become the law. So I think this is, you know, part of Revelation, the into what is into this presence that we all need and this um, sort of longing for Jesus or Proust for his grandmother, you know, um, Mick Jagger for whoever he's singing about. Um, but, yeah, so these phantoms um, can actually sort of become burdens. I don't know if anybody's read the Andre Agassi biography, but he just hated tennis. Hated it worse than anything. And that's sort of one example. Um, or um, is Marinovich the quarterback's name, who was trained to be like the greatest football player? Todd Marinovich, maybe? Greatest football player of all time, and he ended up having this horrible breakdown because he'd been trained to find his value in football and then um, suddenly he had to keep that up at all times. So sort of the judgment of Revelation, part of it is revealing all of these burdens to actually be sort of futile. And I think that's where a lot of the judgment comes in. Um, you see Rome and sort of Rome's power um, like, that's a phantom, that's critique, you know. It's fine that you're at the bottom of the pecking order because the pecking order is um, going to be completely obliterated, maybe tomorrow, and replaced with um, God's city. So again, I'm sorry that some of this is vague and it's sort of hard to um, flesh out the content, but I think emotionally this is sort of how we relate to it. It's this longing for presence, and that's the sort of part that feels good. Um, and then it's also sort of a judgment on all of the things that we think are important. And that feels bad, but it ends up being a good thing because the things that I think are important are, you know, the things that are killing me. Um, like Todd Marinovich or Andre Agassi, luckily my case isn't as extreme as theirs, and yours probably isn't, but it might be. And so anyway, I, I think really with some of the judgment scenes in Revelation, I think are best read as like, you know, maybe you have a kid who um, really wants to be good at sports and maybe uh, like me, he's terrible at sports, you know, can't catch to save his life just on the football field, the gator motion, and then he gets moved to guard and gets plowed over every practice, hopefully not, but um, you know, if your kid's really discouraged about sports, you might just want to say, look, high school football, I know you think it's important, but um, it won't matter that much in 10 years, and it doesn't matter at all to your value as a person. You know, I love you regardless. Or with some of the bullying stuff, you might want to say that to your kid about popularity. I know you think that this is a vital interest, but actually your value and your purpose and my affection for you are 
absolutely separate from that. So that's sort of what this, part of what this judgment is, is a separation and sort of a judgment on human power and a judgment on human pride because, again, once you have a certain image of yourself, you have to maintain that image of yourself. And that maintenance can be exhausting. So these are just sort of what I see as um, some of the emotional dynamics underlying um, the apocalypse. One other thing that um, I just want to read this real quick because I think sort of this complex relationship between judgment and coming alive. I think that Ted Hughes, who is an English poet who was married to Sylvia Plath, they had a very odd life together. Um, and I know, I know that Plath had depression that ran in the family. I think Ted Hughes might have too, but his son was uh, feeling depressed, his son Nick. And Nick wrote him and basically said, um, you know, I don't know what he said, but it sounds like he said, um, I feel like a child sometimes, or I feel inadequate. And what Hughes says in response, he says, um, obviously you're still childish. How could you not be you alone among mankind? It's something most people don't discuss because it's something most people are aware of only as a general crisis or sense of inadequacy or helpless dependence or pointless loneliness or a sense of not having a strong enough ego to meet and master the inner storms that come from an unexpected angle. But not real, many people realize that this is, in fact, the suffering of the child inside them. Everybody tries to protect this vulnerable child and to acquire skills and aptitudes for dealing with situations that threaten to overwhelm it. So everybody develops a whole armor of secondary self, an artificially constructed being that deals with the outer world, negotiates the crush of circumstances. And when we meet people, this is what we usually meet. And if that's the case, often we sort of miss people. You know, you meet somebody in a business meeting, and it's just the two secondary selves just sort of passing like ships in the night. But Hugh says, when you develop a strong divining sense for the child behind that armor and make your dealings only with that child, you find that everybody becomes in a way like your own child. It's an intangible thing. Usually that child is a, and this is again, the self that comes alive when you wake up at three in the morning with all of these anxieties or sort of have that un unexpected Wednesday afternoon malaise. Um, Hugh says, usually that child is a wretchedly isolated, underdeveloped little being. It's been protected by the efficient armor. It's never really participated in life. It's never been exposed to living. It's never been given responsibility for taking the brunt, and it's never properly lived. That's how it is in almost everybody. That creature is sitting there, um, peering through sort of the slits in the armor. And what... Um, what Hughes says, I'm skipping a little bit here, he says, wherever life takes it by surprise, takes us by surprise, suddenly the artificial self of adaptations prove inadequate and fails to ward off the invasion of raw experience. 
That inner self is thrown to the front line, unprepared with all its childhood terrors around its ears. And yet that's the moment it wants. That's where it comes alive, even if only to be overwhelmed and bewildered and hurt. And that's where it calls up its own resources, not artificial aids picked up outside, but real inner resources. Um, That's the paradox. The only time most people feel alive is when they're suffering, when something overwhelms their ordinary careful armor and the naked child is flung out into the world. So I would think of most people, you know, Revelation's got a lot of plagues, like, I don't know, burning stars falling into the waters and they turn into blood. And I think the word wormwood is used a lot. Um, But I would think of some of this dramatic language in Revelation and and some of sort of what you hear of the sense of the judgment of God all around as being more um, sort of stripping away the secondary self, an invasion of raw experience. And I think what's going on in Revelation is um, all of these dramatic images or all of these ideas of the apocalypse is sort of the ultimate example of that. Um, And I think, too, that that's why it's so ineffective when we try to write scripts for the end times or try to pin down exactly what's going on is that's not the point. The point is to have this sort of great higher mystery that makes everything in our lives kind of relative and provisional and small by comparison, to have that sort of sitting over our heads and um, living in anticipation of that.